Hi, Glenn Broggett back on this Thursday morning, Pioneer 90.1 FM. And yes, this weekend marks the 50th anniversary of uh, one of the most significant musical and cultural festivals, uh, yes, in uh, many, many years. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. Three days. Three days of music and, 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 and just getting together and making things happen up there in Bethel. And we have our guest today. Uh, he has written a book. He not only has written a book, but he definitely could tell you from firsthand experience what Woodstock 1969 was like. He's got a great book out there called 50th Anniversary Woodstock Back to Yasger's Farm. And it's uh, going to be a fun few minutes here uh, catching up and talking Woodstock on the eve of uh, the 50th anniversary celebrations uh, going on here this weekend. So very cool to have the author of this book on to chat with us uh, to talk about his experience and the book itself. Mike Greenblatt, uh, welcome to Northwestern Minnesota. We're talking Woodstock here this morning. Thanks for having me on, man. Oh man! So you just—it wasn't all that long ago that you you put out this uh, wonderful book, uh, just in time, the right time. Uh, you struck while the iron sought the fiftieth anniversary of Woodstock here, uh, uh, the 50th anniversary back to Yasger's farm. Uh, let's talk about just putting the book together. What made you finally, you know, decide to uh, get your memories up and, and share uh, the tales and uh, not only your time there, but also the many extensive interviews that you did, not only with musicians but behind the scenes players uh, who all kind of put came together. To to make this festival the legendary festival that it is. Yeah, it's a tapestry of perspectives. I did 32 interviews with the bands, people, the lighting guy, the sound guy, uh, the fans, my own personal memories, uh, uh, those that I couldn't get to. Like, for instance, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I spoke with Stu Cook and Doug Clifford. They hate John Fogarty to this day for a number of reasons. So obviously I had to get balancing comment but when I tried to call Fogarty's people, they said, he don't want to talk about Woodstock anymore. Read his book. So I did. And the quotes in my book are from his. I have a bibliography. It's a, uh, as I say, it's a tapestry of perspectives that lets the reader really feel what it was like to have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, just recently, you, you talk about Credence right out the shoot. Uh, to promote an event that was in our backyard here at the end of June, I ended up talking to Stu Cook, and, and we brought up uh, the topic, of course, of Woodstock. And he, uh, it was kind of fun because he told me, you know, stories of, of, of the experience, but he also told me uh, about how he, the band was able to get off, out of Yasger's farm and to a gig the next night uh, playing uh, with Poco. Yeah, it was a culture shock. Uh, from playing in front of 500,000 people to playing in front of 500 people. Uh, It was amazing. But John Fogarty was wrong. He didn't want the band to be in the movie or the soundtrack because he thought it was a subpar set. i got to tell you from firsthand experience, they were wonderful at Woodstock. You know, and I've listened, I mean, they've done so much work uh, with remastering and putting out as much of the music from that festival as they can. And uh, one of the, the big highlights here of, of those releases was finally you got to hear Creedence full set. And I'm I, I'm in the same boat with you on that. I'm listening back to it, I, though I was not there. I'm listening to it with uh, 43-year-old ears. And I, I'm hearing them, and this was a stellar set. I don't know if he was going for some sort of perfectionist angle, what was going on, if it was just some label dispute, what the deal was, because... This stuff really did sound good, and I'm, I'm glad that a lot of this music is uh, finding its way here uh, in 2019. I think he was just uh, grumpy 
and uh, in a bad mood. They were backstage when the Grateful Dead performed. The Grateful Dead went on seemingly forever, and they put everybody to sleep. The Dead were awful at Woodstock, and and Jerry Garcia even admits that they spent the whole career living it down, how awful they were. And backstage, waiting to go on next, were Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, they knew the guys from the dead. They're from the same town in San Francisco. Uh, but they were getting really antsy and upset, and they thought it arrogant uh, that the dead would go on for 45 minutes jamming on that Bobby Blue Bland song, uh, Love Lights, which was just just terrible. So they played to a sleeping village. They had to rouse this all up again after the dead. So it does seem like a slap in the face when you consider that CCR was one of the first groups that were, were signed up for this big event, and they probably inspired more artists to, to take a look at it because, I mean, once you get the ball rolling with, with, with big acts like that. So I could kind of see where they might have felt spited. I mean, again, the Grateful Dead weren't exactly known, uh, especially in those times, I mean, for, for uh, you know keeping the interests of the mass populace. There may be a few that, that got spaced out and jammed to that Bobby Blue Bland tune, but again, to be able to, it just seemed weird, I mean, again, to come off of that, I mean, a band like Creedence, I, I, they're definitely uh, some warranted sour grapes. Uh, no doubt about it. They were the very first band, the very first big name band, I should say, to sign on. Uh, and then once they signed, the other bands fell into place. So uh, as Stu Cook said, if it wasn't for us, there might not have even been a Woodstock because everybody was afraid to sign with this kid, Michael Lang, who really had no track record. Yeah, the thing is, when you look back at those clips, really, that's how young he was. I mean, what was he down in Miami? Uh, he was managing, he, he had running a head shop at the time, but he was also uh, dipping into the promotion uh, aspect of music with their, the festival out there. So, again, that was some uncharted water even for him. He did the one festival in Miami. It was, uh, it was a nightmare for the fans. Uh, and Woodstock could have very easily been a nightmare for the fans, but it wasn't. Uh, it was a cosmic accident that happened. And then, of course, uh, Woodstock 50 that he tried to promote totally fell apart. I guess he's not very good on the organizational stuff. No, and that was another one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up, too, uh, you know, as we were, we're talking about the first festival. this I mean, up here in northern Minnesota, once we heard news about the Woodstock 50, that was an event that we had actually had, had made, pl- we're going to make plans to go. Thankfully, we didn't get any flights uh, or book anything at the hotels because, of course, we all know what happened with that. I mean, it got to be where we were so excited, and then, you know, and then the announcement of the acts were revealed, and then you just were waiting for the ticket sales, and then, uh, oh, no, we're going to delay it to this point. And then when the ticket sales were getting further delayed, and then the venue fell out, and then another venue fell out, and it just, I mean, even the diehards had to have been exhausted uh, at, the, at the prospect of even ever having this thing take flight. Well, the place to be is the uh, museum at Bethel Woods, uh, Bethel Woods, right on the site of the old Woodstock Festival at that wonderful, wonderful museum. Uh, I'll be there uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, signing books, selling, smiling, and then going to the concerts there every night. Ringo, uh, the Doobie Brothers, Santana, John Fogarty. It's a beautiful little venue, certainly not as big as uh, Watkins Glen, which was the original proposed site of Woodstock 50, but at least you got the right bands in the right place, and I'm really looking forward to going back to Woodstock, so to speak.
Oh, I, I mean, that that is going to be something. And of course, uh, tom- or tonight, uh, things kind of get started here Thursday evening uh, with the, the showing of the movie and, and Arlo Guthrie as well. So you can tack that onto some already really great acts to kind of not to put the large spectacle of a festival on, but to have some really cool shows for people to come enjoy and just really chill and kind of get good vibes off the music and memories uh, of the past there. No doubt about it. And that movie is spectacular. I got to tell you, I recently saw it again for the first time in decades. The other night, I introduced it, took questions at halftime. And uh, <clears throat> what a wonderful film that is. You know, you did so many of these interviews uh, with so many of the, uh, the, uh, of the artists and some of the players behind that. Did, was there anything that, uh, when you, while you're interviewing these guys, that you, you didn't know off the top or some, some stuff that w- became revealing to you as far as uh, Woodstock's history? I mean, we, we get, my generation gets the, uh, you know, we kind of get the idea, but we don't really know the full story. But did you find out more than, than what you actually had uh, known already going into these interviews? No doubt. Uh, I, it, it really could have been a total disaster. There could have been all kinds of horrible things to happen. Uh, uh, Governor Rockefeller wanted to send in the National Guard to disperse everybody uh, on Friday. And, and John Morris, uh, the guy that booked most of the bands, who was always the adult in the room, uh, who used to work for Bill Graham at the Fillmore East doing the same thing, was a real hero of Woodstock. And he got on the phone with the governor's office, and he goes, listen, we can handle this. Don't worry about it. I mean, I can't even imagine what would have happened had the National Guard come in to disperse everybody at the butt of a gun like they did at Kent State just months later, or at Attica State Prison where 32 people died. Um, It could have been a nightmare. And, you know, the thing is, Woodstock is kind of wedged in between two really dark moments, uh, you know, in, in, in music and culture in our country, because this was com- this festival was basically hot off the heels of, of, of the Manson murders. And then a few months later, of course, we know the tale of the Rolling Stones is, uh, sh- you know, show at, at Altamont Speedway. Yeah, uh, we did it right. You know, we're the peace and love generation, right? We proved our credentials at Woodstock. It had never happened before, and it certainly hasn't happened since. And truthfully, I don't think you could replicate what went on in Bethel in August of 69. I mean, think about it. 500,000 people with not enough water, food, bathrooms, and then put a monsoon in there on Sunday that just drenched everybody, and there was three or four hours of no music at all, and and no police. No security and not one reported instance of violence. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that in these times, man. It's just not not possible. It's definitely a moment that uh, we should look back on and, 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 and try not to force the replication of a moment. I mean, yes, Woodstock kind of became in and of itself a corporation when it got into the 90s with the two shows uh, in uh, 94 and then 99, which, you know, for better or for worse, especially in the case of 1999, really didn't do the, uh, the, the legacy any favors. But again, that was more of a case of Woodstock trying to establish itself as a brand as these other festivals that were basically, you know, learning from Woodstock started springing up really prevalently in the 1990s. Culturally, they were disasters. They might have came off, but I think, I don't know which one it was, either 94 or 99 with rapes, arson, uh, violence. Uh, It boggles the mind that we were able to subsist in that in those conditions i mean i remember the feeling everybody was so friendly 
Uh, everybody fed each other. Uh, they shared what little food that they had. I mean, the food ran out at one point. I'll never forget going to the hot dog stand that I had been going to uh, on Friday. We're going back on Saturday, and they said, we're out. We're out of food, man. And I said, well, is there another hot dog stand? And, and they go, no, there's no food anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And then you got people, you know, there was, you know, things we see clips of, of course, the hog farm as well. I mean, trying to help out with, with, with what they could with, you know, again, it was a story of people helping people with the, the breakfast and kind of basically putting granola into the front lines, man. People probably got more aware of uh, granola after Woodstock as well. I think granola was invented at Woodstock. I, I don't doubt that in the least bit. I want to talk about what drew you to Woodstock. I mean, yes, you're a young man. You, you know, this is the ultimate rock and roll festival. History has to, told some of us the story, but you got to be in the moment. Uh, let's talk about your Woodstock journey. What led you to uh, to Yasger's farm? And uh, man, what an experience. I couldn't even begin to think about what your mind must have went through those days. Well, we weren't going to go. We were going to go see Led Zeppelin down the shore in Asbury Park, New Jersey. But the commercials on the radio, we realized every single band that we knew and loved was going to be on the same stage in one weekend. Uh, we had to go. So we went to a local head shop, The Last Straw in Bloomfield, New Jersey. We bought our tickets, $17.50 for all three days. Uh, we got there Thursday afternoon, a day before the festival. And, and when we got there, there was nobody to give the ticket to. So we threw him away, and we, we sauntered on down right in front of the stage. I mean, 500,000 people, maybe we were 100 people deep from the stage itself, and we knew we weren't going to give up that spot. But the plan was to go back to the car at some point where all our food and water and blankets and toothpaste, toothbrush, towels, tent, pot, books, all kinds of stuff. We're back at the car. Well, when we, when we fell asleep Thursday night, right in front of the stage and got up Friday morning and turned around, we freaked out because we saw the vista of humanity that had assembled unbeknownst to us in the middle of the night. There was no getting back to the car all four days. We didn't even know where the car was. Now, for you, what were some of like, I mean, there were so many great acts to pick from that, that played there, and some had better sets than others. But for you, what, what, what was uh, the, the highlights music-wise? I mean, the ones that really stood out a little bit more than the others. I mean, that, again, that's like fish in a barrel. But what was it for you as far as the, the music acts there? Well, I got to tell you, Sly and the Family Stone blew me away. I had never, as an 18-year-old white kid from Newark, New Jersey, I had never seen such music, never even heard such music. The, the heavy funk, the driving rhythms, the horns, uh, we were, I mean, then they went on like 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were dancing, and I know it sounds like a cliche and, and corny now, but we were throwing the peace sign up in the air. We were chanting the word higher. Uh, it was so exciting and so exhilarating and cathartic that uh, I'll never forget their set. They, they really do stand out. Yeah, I've listened, I mean, a few years back, it was probably to coincide with the uh, the 40th anniversary, there was uh, some of the sets that were out, and that was one of them that they featured, and man, Sly and the Family Stone, when Sly was on, when Sly wasn't being, you know, Sly and some of the things that we ended up learning more about with his problems with things and substances, but when that band was on, that wasn't just music, that was a force of nature. 
yeah, yeah, they were unbelievable. And boy, he was at the top of his game in 1969. They would never be as good again. It was a moment in time that that band just ruled. And, and because of the, uh, the uh, fusion of hard rock and funk, just like Santana. The reason Santana came to prominence, and I mean, no one had ever even heard who Santana was. The first album wasn't even out. But their fusion of Latin music with hard rock and all that percussion, that had never been heard before. Uh, so again, that's another set that just blew us away. Same thing with Ravi Shankar. I had never heard anyone play live sitar in front of me. Sure, I heard Painted Black by the Stones. Uh, sure, I heard Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. Uh, but to hear a guy play sitar blew me away. I remember getting so demonstrative that the guy to the left of me tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, Dude, calm down. He's just tuning up. <laughs> And that uh, reminds me too of the uh, the concert for for Bangladesh uh, when when he was playing in Madison Square Garden and people bursted into applause and he had to basically kindly say no we're just tuning. Right, exactly. The, the Ravi Shankar tuning up his sitar is better than half the rock acts out there. <laughs> hey, I, I I have to agree with you, man. I mean, because you can even get you can get lost in them when that when a sitar gets playing, man. Oh, there's been some good good stuff recorded and in concert through the years. Uh, it doesn't get enough enough credit, I think. Uh, I agree. I agree. And there's something about the sound between the guitar and the tabla, that percussion instrument. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, I've learned that those Indian vocals, those percussive Indian vocals, uh, there's an album out, uh, uh, Miles to India, where a, gr- a group of musicians do Miles Davis material in true India classical music fashion. It's still one of my greatest albums. We're talking with Mike Greenblatt. He's the author of 50th Anniversary Woodstock, Back to Yasger's Farm. And uh, we just have a couple of questions uh, that I'm going to ask here before we, we part ways today, because this is a busy man. He's got Woodstock. He's got memories to go in and, and rekindle. I, I want to talk about uh, some of the stuff that also, yeah, necessarily, not necessarily the music, but when you listen to the soundtrack, and now when you can listen to the full thing that has almost everything, is uh, some of the stage announcements that almost became just as uh, popular and notable uh, uh, during Woodstock stock as some of the music well i always said woodstock would be uh would have been a lot easier with bottled water and cell phones but uh since there were no cell phones people were handing the stage crew messages uh john come get your medicine at the medical tent or jim i have your car keys meet us at the uh announcement table uh it's amazing that uh this thing came off without a hitch uh and without any uh problems other than the natural problems but yeah, I, I listen to it today, and I can't believe how, first of all, I can't believe how good the sound is. Bill Hanley is the father of festival sound, and boy, did he do a great job. He should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He had to make sure that the people way up on the hill could hear it while not blasting out those of us in the front, and he did. Yeah, to find that balance, and, and again, to listen back on it, and, and just to, to hear the brilliance of a person who could put the sound together, I, I mean, that is just amazing, 50 years uh, past. I got one more question uh, here, uh, well, maybe two, but one more. I got to ask you, you know, Chipmunk, uh, he was another guy that was involved with that. Uh, also, uh, what do you, you remember from, from Chip's, uh, some of his announcements? And also, I got to ask you one more question. It was being circulated around the grounds. Did you encounter the brown acid? <laughs> when that announcement was made on the stage, and it's in the movie, it's a great point in the movie, uh, where Chip says, 
don't take the brown acid. My response sitting there in the audience was, oh, no, I just took it. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it was fine for me. Uh, so I didn't mind the brown acid. I was tripping my brains out on Sunday when the monsoon came and they had to stop the music. And my friend Neil left me to go find a phone booth for our, to call our moms. And I started to get a little paranoid because the place that we had was a, now a lake. I couldn't sit down anymore. I couldn't leave because I thought that Neil would never find me again. I was hungry and thirsty and had to go to the bathroom and tripping, and there was no music, and it wasn't fun anymore. And that's what my book has over and above some of these other books, that sense of drama that puts the reader right in that position. And I can't wait, and I hope others who are listening today will, will definitely check out your book, 50th Anniversary Woodstock, Back to Yasger's Farm, which also, before, another thing we I forgot to mention, features a foreword from another artist who made a notable appearance. Uh, we're talking about Mr. Country, Joe McDonald. He wrote the foreword to the book. Uh, he had a wonderful story about Janis Joplin in my book that I argued with my editor not to censor. Uh, it's an unbelievable moment when he did the fish cheer and when he said, give me an F, and we gave it to him. Give me a U, and we gave it to him. And then he said, what's that spell? And we shouted that word out that I can't say on the radio. But you've got to understand, in 69, when you're 18, with tens of thousands of people around you shouting out the same word at the top of your lungs, it's cathartic. It was hilarious. It represented true freedom. And that was one of the high points of Woodstock. It was definitely something that was needed uh, in the year of 1969, uh, three days of just music, uh, togetherness, and uh, yeah, it, it made history at the same time. Um, before we go, I just want to let you put get in the last word here uh, about your book and about Woodstock uh, before we part. There's a great section in the middle of the book that everybody seems to love. All 32 acts, their picture, their set list, their personnel, the time they went on, the time they went off and their top five albums. And then there's a page called Invited to the Dance, but all 25 great rock and roll legends that were invited to play Woodstock and why they didn't play. I remember interviewing Tommy James about that topic here about 10, 9, 10 years ago, and he said uh, when he heard about it, uh, they were like, uh, well, why do we want to play at a hog farm when we got a gig in Hawaii? Yeah, they were in the middle of paradise. They were put up at a hotel at the, at the, at the foot of Diamond Head. They get a message from their agent that some hog farmer in upstate New York wants you to play their festival. Tommy James laughed in his face. Was that similar stuff, too? When it, I mean, you talk about some of the acts of the day that weren't there. You mean you got, like, uh, the, the Doors, the, the Rolling Stones, and, and Bob Dylan. Those are three that just, for example, come to mind. Well, Dylan was there in spirit because he was the rumor all weekend, oh, Dylan's going to show up, Dylan's going to show up. I mean, the band was there, the, the group that backed him up. Joan Baez, his lover at the time, was there. I mean, he lived close to there, uh, and everyone thought he was going to show up. up. Right up until Jimi Hendrix, they still said he was showing up, but he didn't. And that, again, part of uh, what makes Dylan Dylan, basically. <laughs> I know. He played the Isle of Wight Festival just months later in England, though. Yeah, and didn't he end up at, did he end up at the 94 Festival? I mean, I'm trying to remember if it was 94 or 99. I think it was the 94 Festival he finished up one of the nights. You might be right. 
you know what? We, we've run out of time. You know, there's got to be some time down the line where uh, we got to just have come on and just talk music. We can pick a topic and probably go on and on and on. So this was a nice uh, way to get our foot in the door because I, I enjoyed talking with you about the, the Woodstock uh, Festival, your book, 50th Anniversary Woodstock Back to Yasker's Farm. It's always a blast uh, to talk to somebody who lived in the moment. Yeah, yeah, I I always said it was the best weekend and the worst weekend of my life. And you'll understand why it might have been also the worst weekend when you read the book. I want to thank you again for taking some time. And uh, again, the door is always open, my friend. Thanks. I'd love to do it again with you, pal. Absolutely. Mike uh, Greenblatt, his book, you got to go check it out. And uh, while you get the chance, uh, you you know what? Go online and uh, look up Woodstock and uh, maybe listen in to some of the things that are going on this weekend up there in the Bethel Woods. For Pioneer 90.1 FM, I'm Glenn Broggett.